Welcome to Self-Compassionate Professor, a podcast helping academics and former academics to find wellness, meaning, purpose, and freedom in life and career. I'm Danielle Delamar. Glad you're here. Hey, hey, it's Danielle. I'm glad you all are joining me for another episode. Um, This is actually my milestone episode. It is episode 20, which is sort of unbelievable. I don't know what is happening, but I have this crazy... Let me see if you can hear this. Listen. Can you hear that? That's one of my kids' toys. I don't know even where it's coming from. There's like a pile of toys here to my left, and they're making noises. I don't even know what this toy is that's making this crazy noise. Um... But anyway, that is like the story of my life right now. Here I am in pandemic world. My family left as an early birthday present to me. They're giving me most of the day by myself. (laughs) That's what I wanted for my birthday. And so they left. I am like by myself for the first time. And what happens I'm not actually in the basement like I usually am, hiding away from them. I'm actually like in my living room, enjoying myself, you know, and what happens? This toy starts singing while I'm while I'm recording this, right? So even when they're not here, they're freaking here. Oh, my gosh. Pandemic life. Oh, my gosh. Um, anyway, I am so glad you're here. Like I said, this is a milestone. This is episode 20. Super excited. I am talking to uh, Dr. Jessica Garrett Mills in today's episode, and she is an executive functioning coach, and she has done so much amazing work over the last like 13, 14 years to prepare herself to become an expert in executive functioning. And if you don't know, executive functioning is like um, organizing and planning and uh, being able to uh, to sort of navigate in a navigate your life in a productive way. And she works with students. She works with uh, PhD students. She works with high school students. She works with college students. And um, she has really just followed her interest, right? She's just been like, you know, this is the kind of thing I'm interested in. This is the kind of stuff I want to do. And so she just starts reading the literature and then just kind of trains herself to become an executive functioning coach. It's a really amazing story. And I recommend that everybody follows their interests and their passions because it leads you to really good places. Okay, so Jessica Garrett Mills, thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here. Um, Yeah, my pleasure. I want to talk about your very creative career path. Um, This is not a path that everyone takes for sure. Um, And so I want to start, if you don't mind, with the PhD in, mm-hmm. I think it was educational psychology at University of Michigan. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Okay. So why did you get a PhD? Like, what was the motivation? I'm always interested in that story. 
Well, my undergrad was in psychology, and then I went on to get a master's of education to be an elementary school teacher. Um, and about halfway through that, I, maybe it was getting up at 5.30 in the morning every day. I don't know what it was, but I just, I had always wanted to be a teacher, and I came to recognize through that program that I did not want to be an elementary classroom teacher. Um, and one of my faculty members in that MED program <clears throat> was someone who's written a big, one of the main textbooks in educational psychology. So mm. I think I was talking with her. I, I think also, now that I think of it, I was doing a little bit of, you know, very basic research assistant stuff for her. Um, and she must have thought, recommended it, or I got it in my head like, oh, well, maybe maybe this is not the right kind of grad school for me, but maybe research questions um, mm -hmm. would be interesting for me. And we had to write a big capstone project, which was research, kind of action research. And so I got interested in the idea of doing my own research. Um, I went and worked at a lab for a year to get some research experience and then applied to grad schools. And I, I think I was still kind of naive about what that whole process looked like. I only applied to U of M um, and miraculously got in. And, um, and then it was a, a combined program in educational psychology, so it's an interdisciplinary program which appealed to me. Um, and I went and I really, really loved grad school. So mm. I, I did like research at the time. Um, mm. And that was my, my path into getting the PhD. Okay, and so your plan after you mm -hmm. got the PhD was to be a, a faculty member, go down that, that very specific sort of academic path? That was definitely my plan. I still loved teaching. Um, and I thought I just hadn't found the right age group with elementary school kids. Uh, uh -huh. And I did like teaching in grad school, and I still think of what I do in a way as teaching. Um, I think I'm sort of a teacher in my DNA. And um, so that was definitely the plan until I would say I did a research, I did a year of research in Switzerland because I was studying educational systems in the past from school to work here and in Europe. And um, so I did a year there and I did some semesters in Berlin, in Germany. And I loved the travel, um, but I think I started to see that research alone <laughs> you know, was not gonna, was not gonna cut it for me. Mm. Um, wasn't gonna sort of fill my tank. And mm -hmm. additionally, I started getting incredibly homesick. And I really wanted to find my way back to Ohio. Not Ohio, but Columbus, Ohio, where my family was. Um, mm. And you know, if you, if you wanna be an academic and you're like full on gonna do the academic, tenure track path, you usually don't get to be super picky about where. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. I, after grad school, I went and I did a postdoc out in California for a year, partly because I was interested in the postdoc and partly because there was a guy out there that I was following. Um, mm. And 
I, through that postdoc, re- recognized, like, okay, for real, this is not, this is not the path for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I started sort of charting a course for how to get back to Columbus, um, whether that was academia or not. I mean, at that point, I still had one foot in academia. So I was still looking for an academic path back to Columbus, but, um, but I started to kind of loosen my grip on that as the only plan for the future. Okay. And so um, will you talk about when it first then struck you um, when you were, you know, abroad and you were thinking, you know, this is not filling my tank. This research thing is not everything to me. Like maybe mm-hmm. I thought it would be. Um, mm-hmm. And and then you're like, I really miss my family. I really want to go home. Um, are there is there anything else at that point that that you were thinking about when you realized? research wasn't, as you say, filling your tank? No. When I was in Zurich, I had no idea what the alternative would be. Um, And I wasn't even sure that it was research. I mean, it was like a very lonely year. I didn't know a lot of people. I didn't speak Swiss German. Um, Mm -hmm. I did speak German a little bit, but um, I really couldn't. It it was tricky. It's a it's not a very open culture to outsiders. Um, so it was a tricky year for me. Um, I, had, I loved Berlin, and people were super friendly there, but, um, but that wasn't for this, like, full, dark year. Um, and I think I was still thinking, like, well, maybe it's just that I'm not in the right place geographically. Okay. Maybe I just need to get through the dissertation. That final push of the dissertation year I think for everyone is, well, maybe not for everyone, but for me, I'll say, was was really emotionally hard. Um, mm-hmm. I was obviously, like, writing a lot and working really hard, and I kind of let a lot of my other obligations go. Like, I was really active in the... Um, in the labor union, and I let that go for the final year because I thought I have to focus on this. And mm. um, I think that was probably a mistake because I, it was a, it was a very sad year. You know, it was a hard year. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, well, I'm going to go out to California. There's going to be sunshine out there. Um, there's this person that I love out there, and um, me and and one of my best friends who t- drove with me. So I didn't have to make the drive myself and my dog in the back seat, loaded everything in the car and drove out to the Bay Area. Um, and as I was driving across the country, and you know, when you when you drive from Ohio to California, um, the states get bigger, the sky gets bigger. There's fewer and fewer trees. You drive across Iowa and it's like all corn for a hundred years, and then you you start to hit the Rocky Mountains and all of the topographic changes and blue skies. And um, we got to Wyoming, and there are those, oh, man, I forget that geographical feature, with the, like the mountains with the top cut off. It's a, maybe they're called steps or something like that. I don't know. It oh, was I don't know. Yeah. And um, it it just felt like, for the first time in two years, I took a full breath. Mm. And I thought, oh, 
this is where it's at. Like, I am doing the right thing. I'm going to just, like, shake off all the darkness of writing my dissertation. Um, well, I'm ready for what is waiting for me. Um, and I thought, like, okay, I'm going to soak up this year. I'm going to enjoy myself. I'm going to get back into research. <laughs> Oops. Um, <laughs> again, when I got out there and started getting into research, it, it again, was not the right fit for me. Um, now, of course, I said a minute ago that I really love teaching, and a postdoc is not about teaching. I had no teaching obligations. Um, mm. So I found a community college out there, and I taught one class. Um, okay. each semester that I was out there just to see, like, okay, well, maybe adding a little bit of teaching is going to help. Um, and I loved the teaching. I loved those kids out there. But, again, the research was just, like, I felt like I couldn't make myself get into it. Um, so this is, like, you know, the universe banging me over the head. I've tried research over and over and over again, and it just – it wasn't what I wanted. Um, in the back of my head this whole time, I'm thinking, like, I want to be, be back with my family. Um, yeah. The relationship I was yeah. in was, like, was kind of crumbling a little bit, and I wanted to be back in Columbus as I had wanted to be. Um, so I started looking for academic jobs back in Ohio. Um, and I applied for one that I did not get, but then they called me a few months later and said, if you're still interested, we have this visiting assistant assistantship open, and we would love for you to do it. And you don't have to reapply or anything, like we'll just, because they, they had already done a full application or a full um, interview process with me. So I said, yes, absolutely, done. Mm -hmm. And I came back and I taught for three years at OSU um, on this visiting assistantship. And um, I, again, surprise, surprise, really loved teaching. And mm -hmm. the research was like still kind of a slog. So here I was. Mm -hmm. It took me, you know, maybe five years of trying and banging my head against the wall until I finally was like, okay, well, this is for real. I trained for a million years to become a researcher, and <laughs> turns out I don't want to do that. And, you know, that's kind of a hard shift. That's a hard shift. It took me years. Okay. And that's what I was going to ask about just a minute ago. Like, was it about the loneliness of research? But it doesn't sound mm. that sound like it was exactly that um, because you were around your social support at, at the time of the visiting professorship. Yes? Yeah, no? you know, yes, um, I was. I don't think it was the loneliness of, like, the, the personal life loneliness. Um, I, I did find when I was doing research, when I was, in Berlin, there was a very, I, w I was at a um, Max Planck Institute, which is like a very collaborative place, at least the one I was at. And every day for lunch, we would go down to the, the like, cafeteria, and then after lunch, we would all get coffee and sit around and talk about ideas. And it was like awesome. It was your ideal 
research institute life, you know, where you're like really into the ideas of things. And I had a lot of good friends there. And, um, and the pockets of time when I did enjoy research is when I found that community where we were like talking about ideas and it felt very collaborative. Um, but you know, much of research is not the big ideas. A lot of it is the slog of crunching mm -hmm. data and writing papers and fixing references and all that nitty-gritty that you just do with yourself in front of a computer. There's, no, there's nothing collaborative about much of research. Um, so I think that the collaborative parts just weren't sustaining for me. Okay. Okay. That totally makes sense to me. Okay. So, uh, so now you are coaching people, and uh, I'll, I'll give you a chance to talk more about like, what you do, but I know you do have a particular group of people um, in, that, that you got started with, right, in terms of uh, people who are working through their dissertations. And mm -hmm. I'm just curious, just based on the conversation so far, are those people uh, that you work with or have worked with in the past getting them through their dissertation, is loneliness part of the issue? Is that a theme that you see in clients as well, or is that just sort of what you're noticing for you and your, your story and your experience? Mm. Well, I think for a lot of people. So I, I specialize with um, clients with executive functioning issues, so that's a lot of my clients have ADHD. Executive functioning skills are working memory, inhibitory control, that's like self-control, like the ability to um, delay gratification and not check Facebook because you're supposed mm -hmm. to be looking for a reference. Um, okay. And flexible thinking, like not getting too upset when things don't go the right way. Um, mm -hmm. Paying attention, organizing, planning, prioritizing, all that stuff is executive functioning. Um, so we know that Folks with weak executive functions, and and really, I would probably put everybody um, in the category that I'm going to describe next. Um, everybody does better with tasks. is be is more motivated at tasks that are interesting, novel, and challenging. And for a lot of people, um, the interest comes from the social interaction. Um, and for a lot of people, having accountability outside of themselves is what motivates them. So for instance, I have a lot of people who, um, when they're working on a collaborative project or they owe someone a chapter or they um, promised someone they would get them some statistical analysis, that stuff gets done. If you told someone, I'm going to get it to you on Friday, then you get it to them on Friday. Um, yeah. Or maybe like, oh, you, you missed your deadline, you get it to them on Monday, whatever. But the projects that go months and months without getting any attention are the ones that you owe to no one. Mm -hmm. um, like you're just on your own, you're supposed to be writing, you're supposed to be crunching numbers, you're supposed to be doing revisions, whatever it is, and nobody's checking in and you don't owe anyone anything in the meantime. Like maybe you know that you owe it to them in a year or in two months, at the end of the summer, whatever, but, but there's no accountability 
to any other human being in baby steps. And that I see as hugely problematic for a lot of my clients. It's how most research is set up, unless you have one of those um, unicorn advisors who like meets with you once a week and checks in and has you has little baby steps of things due to them. Most people don't have that advisor. And yeah. if you don't have that advisor, it's really hard. Like, you know, they say, well, let, get me something when you've got it done. That is yeah. not going to work for most brains, especially for people that are struggling with executive functions, but really for just about anyone. That is a really hard task. Okay. Okay. And that, that makes sense to me, like the, the interesting, novel, challenging stuff often mm-hmm. comes from other people. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, cause that's, that's where you, the dialogue, right? like different ideas emerge through that or, you know, right. like, oh, I hadn't thought of doing it that way. That's so interesting that we, we're taking this path now and there's the novel piece and, and, it's, and, of course, the interesting piece is there too. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, and I guess yeah. also, you know, we're just social beings and, of course, we need other people and, and we're not exactly. often getting that in the dissertation. Okay. Okay, yeah. so tell me more about the work you do. Um, talk about how you got there um, because we, cause I know I made you take this big jump from, oh, I was a researcher <laughs> and now I do this thing. So talk about how you left academia. What, that, that part I'm really interested in um, and um, sort of your, your breakup story. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> When I finished my dissertation, it was, I defended in February. So I had a couple months to kind of spin my wheels before I graduated, and I was still in Ann Arbor. And I had some friends who were finishing their dissertations or working on their dissertations, and they asked if I would meet with them and kind of keep them accountable. Um, That last year, I had been a bit of a machine, and I worked like nine to five, sometimes a a second shift after dinner, and I got that thing done. And I think people were like, okay, I need to do that too. Meet with me and help me stay on track. Um, And so I worked with people. I I wasn't charging anyone at that point. I think I was like working for beer or something. Um, Mm -hmm. And I would meet with people. There was even a group of women that I met with, and we just talked about like what are our goals or what are their goals and what do they want to be held accountable for the next week. Um, and I really loved doing it. It mm. was, it was like, oh, this is fun. This is interesting. It's it's interesting. It's novel. It's challenging, right? And, ah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and then I kind of started poking around, and I rec- I realized I think I found something online about dissertation coaching, and I was like, oh my god, this is a thing. I could yeah. I could do this. I still wasn't thinking of it as a full-time gig, but I thought I could maybe be paid for this on the side. Um, and then out in California, I continued to work with some people online, and I built a web page um, as I was procrastinating, not doing my research. Um, <laughs> and then as I, got, as I came back to Columbus, uh, still, I mean, we're talking like five hours a week or something. I was, this was not at all even, this is still a hobby project. Um, mm-hmm. I came back to Columbus, and I 
I grew up in like a small suburb of Columbus where I knew a lot of people because I, you know, used to be like the swim coach and stuff like that. And um, people started saying like, what are you up to? And I've got this kid. Are you, do you still work with kids in any way? And can I, like, how can we work with you? What are you doing? And I was like, well, I do this coaching. Um, maybe, maybe what I'm doing is sort of tutoring. Um, and a lot of my initial clients had ADHD. And that started to be a really interesting question for me. Like, what is it? What is this ADHD thing? My research was on transition from school to work. It was not about executive function. But a lot of these clients came to me with the specific set of problems, this syndrome. They had trouble paying attention. They had trouble organizing and planning and prioritizing. They had trouble starting tasks. They had st trouble completing tasks. Um, a lot of the same set of challenges that my dissertation clients had. And, mm. and that was really cool and interesting and curious to me. And so I started reading a lot and researching about executive functions. I started working more and more in a coaching capacity, less in a – I mean, I, I never build myself as a tutor, but those first clients I had, um, I was kind of doing more tutoring. Um, and then – I, you know, I was still doing this, this visiting assistantship, but it was generous with its time. Like, I, I didn't have research obligations. I think if you knew you were on the tenure track hopeful path, you would be wise to do research while you're doing this visiting assistantship because, like, otherwise you're not going to get a job. Mm -hmm. But I was already kind of, like, backing out the door a little bit. <laughs> so I didn't mm -hmm. feel the need to to do that much research, so I was working on kind of wrapping my head around what coaching would look like. What is academic coaching? What is ADHD coaching? Executive functioning coaching still isn't exactly a, quote, thing. I mean, that's what I call what I do because that, that is what I do. That's the umbrella. That's how I conceive of it. But if you Google executive functioning coaching, um, you're not going to get a lot of hits. Okay. Now, ADHD coaching is 100% a thing, and there's like ADHD coaching schools, and um, there's community there. Um, okay. But I don't just work with folks with ADHD. Um, I started getting people who had students with autism that, that needed minimal supports, but then they got to high school and they needed more supports than the school was providing. Um, okay. I started working with people with anxiety, which is, of course, a huge issue in grad school and in college as well. But it's also, you know, a major issue in high school, and anxiety affects executive functions. If you're a very anxious person it, um, and, and, or you're in an anxious episode, it affects working memory. It affects self-control, it affects flexibility, all that stuff. It's hard um, to pay attention. Um, okay. So I've got this three years in my, po in, not the postdoc, in the um, visiting assistantship. And at the same time, I'm working on building a coaching practice. It was still part-time. I would say at the end of those three years, um, I in that time had gotten married and um, we wanted to have kids. And I started 
um, I started adjuncting at a liberal arts college in town and doing, and doing some, some research at the college um, and helping like do administrating research. Um, but again, that, that was just a job, you know, I wasn't like, uh, it, was, it was interesting, but it wasn't like my passion. Um, mm -hmm. And the whole time I'm building and building, building this coaching practice, um, which by the way, for anybody that wants to get into coaching, I think slow and steady wins the race on this one. Um, mm. it, it, for the first 10 years, I didn't need it to be, for the first 12 years, I didn't need it to be a major moneymaker for me. I was just learning and I was building a name and I was getting my name out there and learning some of the business systems that make it doable, like, you know, QuickBooks and boring stuff like that. Um, and then, okay, so then I, where am I now? I am doing some adjuncting, and then I have my first kid, and adjuncting doesn't pay very well at all. It doesn't pay for a babysitter. Um, I didn't want to leave my kid. And I had this coaching thing. You know, I was working 12 hours a week, 15 hours a week, I don't know, which seemed kind of mm. perfect with a baby. Mm. Um, mm. And then I had another kid. And now my oldest is six. And when my youngest was one and a half or something, I thought, like, okay, here I am. I've got this not even half-time coaching practice. I'm not teaching at the university level anymore. Um, I could get back into, I could do grant writing. I could do, you know, so even as much as, even 12 years in, I still didn't know that this was definitely my thing. I thought wow. maybe I could go do research again. I could, um, I don't know. I, I could go work as a trainer at the corporate level and make oodles of money. Um, but I kept coming back to coaching. I've been doing it for a long time, 12 years. I still wasn't bored of it, which is kind of a thing for me. I still mm. found it interesting. There was new stuff to learn all the time. Um, and I thought, all right, I'm going to give it a year. And I'm going to see, like, if I actually do a little bit of marketing, if I actually think of this as a as a full-time business, not a full-time, but like my, my main business. A year from now, is it going to be viable and is it going to be something that I still want to do? Okay. And so I did that and that year ended up, um, you know, sometime 2019 or whatever. I finished 2019 and I was turning away clients and wow. – getting contract, you know, getting some interest in doing some professional development for school districts, getting some interest from colleges that wanted me to um, sort of sub do some subcontracting, doing some executive functioning coaching for their students. Um, mm. And it felt like, okay, okay, this is a thing. If I want this to be my thing, this is a thing. Um, wow. I can, I can work. 25 hours a week, 30 hours a week, and make a full-time salary and still be, walk my kid to school in the morning and pick her up from school after, you know, at three every day and be there to tuck my kids in every night 
and wow. have have my weekends off. You know, like it felt like a little bit of work life balance, which is what everybody's chasing. Um, yeah. It felt professionally fulfilling. It felt interesting and challenging and novel. Um, and, and then coronavirus hit, but I'm still doing okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, so now 13, 14 years in. So this is what I'm thinking about. Even 12 years in, I wrote this mm-hmm. down. Even 12 years <laughs> in, I still didn't know it was my thing. Mm-hmm. What what do you think it was? I, I don't know if it's like external, it's cultural, it's like the academic poll. What in your mind um, do you think was it was getting you to question this thing that was entirely your thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. As you learned, well, you know, I think it's kind of like when you're young and you think about who you're going to fall in love with and you Mm -hmm. think that they're going to check all the boxes and they're going to be the be all end all and they're going to just, they're going to be everything to you. Mm -hmm. And I think for most grownups, that's not how love works. That's why you have a family. That's why you have friends. That's why you have work. That's why, you know, you just have other things. One person can't be everything. And I think also, with, with career, a lot of us, especially those of us who are white, upper-middle-class, privileged folks who are told, you can, you can do anything. You can be anything. You find that thing that just sets your heart on fire and makes you sing. You know, your career can be everything you want it to be. And... I think that's unfair. <laughs> that's unfair to career. Um, a career mm. shouldn't have to be everything. It mm. should check a lot of the boxes. Mm. You shouldn't dread it. It shouldn't make mm. you anxious. It shouldn't make you hate your life. <laughs> but, and, and certainly there should be moments every day when you feel like this is great, or most days, you know, but it can't be everything. And so I think I was still thinking – is this is this gonna be the is this the one you know is this gonna be everything? Uh huh. Uh huh. And I think maybe when I had kids, I realized like okay, there's some there's some trade offs here. Like if I want to pick up my kids at school, I can't. I can't then also expect to have mm. the job that is everything. Mm. There's a balance. Like you, there's trade offs. Being a grown-up, right. Um, right? And I wonder about the you know the people you work with that are trying to decide is academia right for them, um, or what would be right for them. I think that's a hard lesson, especially for those of us that have been told like you can you can have it all, you can be the full-on mom and the full-on um, partner and the full-on hobbyist and the full-on career person and. Um, and each of these categories is going to be amazing. Mm-hmm. And that's too much mm-hmm. pressure, and it's unrealistic. And, and maybe, maybe it's just good enough. Mm. Maybe, so, maybe it's great enough. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. But not, but, but not perfect. 
you know, it, there's no such thing. Yeah, yeah. And and so I'm thinking about, um, so this is the question I want to ask because I think that this is the thing that gets, um, that gets at a lot of people who, um, who want that perfect job, as, you, as you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, where, like, I think if you answer this question, a lot of people might be able to kind of rest. I guess that's what I'm trying to say, like rest <laughs> in the peace of uh, and not everything has to be perfect. And, you know, my career doesn't have to be everything to me. So my question is, where, where was the coaching you were doing, the executive functioning coaching you were doing, falling short? Um, for your mm. perfectionist mindset. Okay. Um, well, there's not a lot of collegiality. Like, I don't have colleagues that I see at work. Um, okay. I, I've rented an office, and I go in, and I meet with my clients, but I don't have anybody at the water cooler to say hi to, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So that's imperfect. Um, my grad school and college clients I find continuously interesting and novel and challenging. My mm. high school clients, 14 years in or whatever, um, sometimes it's, I, you know, I see the same thing. I've, I've, got, I've come to be an expert at this, and, and expertise sometimes means that you, you see patterns and things. So not every kid that comes in is a brand-new kid, um, they all have their interesting, unique selves and their interesting and unique challenges. But it's but helping a kid learn how to take notes in a more effective way gets to be the same. Um, so mm. not every mm. single aspect of it is going to be like supercharged, exciting, interesting, novel, challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And. The business side of it, frankly, is not my favorite part. Marketing, keeping books, billing people, you know, like that's, that's not my jam, but it comes along with owning a business, and so it's fine. Um, mm-hmm. So there's parts of it that, that I have to just suck up. You know, like when you're doing research, there's going to be parts of it that are boring. When you own a business, yeah. there's going to be parts of it that are boring, and I just have to accept that. Um, and then I have to kind of do workarounds. Like I don't have people that I see at the proverbial water cooler, but I do have – there are people in Columbus who do ADHD coaching, and in the past three or four years, I've made a concerted effort to reach out to them, and we go and get coffee once in a while. You know, that I've tried to make yeah. a community. Um, sometimes that's tricky because people are like, well, I don't want to be I don't want to be colleagues with you because we're in competition here. Um, mm. But most people are, are pretty cool about, you know, they, they want community too. So there are some aspects of the business that are just of any career that are unchangeable um, that we have to accept as part of the deal. And some aspects we can change, and then you have to decide, is it worth changing them? And it sounds like for you, like the business side, um, like you say, of billing and all the other, the marketing and the stuff, that 
that's not fun for you, but it's it's better than maybe what you talked about before, the slog of crunching data and fixing references yeah. and doing the boring academic work. Like it, when you compare those two things, you would choose the business over yeah. the research. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I don't know why. It just, um, for, for whatever reason, it's a little more palatable. Yeah. You can also okay, hire people so, to do it for you. Yeah. <laughs> you can also what? Say that again. Hire people to do it for you. I have not chosen to do that for all of it, but, you know, like I hired an accountant and stuff. So that's, mm-hmm. there's some pieces that you can farm out if you want to in a way that you, I suppose with research, if you get to a place, you can have grad students do some of the stuff, but um, I was certainly not at that place ever. Um, is there, because I know you said you're such a teacher and that's what you want to be doing always is teaching. And is there, uh, is there something about teaching in this executive functioning coaching way that, that is, what is more fulfilling about the teaching in this area than as, you know, a typical academic teacher in a classroom? Mm. Um, I love that everyone that shows up gets to leave feeling like they've got tools that are going to serve them well the coming week and hopefully for their whole life. You know, unlike mm-hmm. a, a college lecture where you, there's material that you need to deliver and um, not everybody is there because they're super psyched about learning lifespan development or whatever it is that you're teaching. Um, some of <laughs> them, many of them are there because it's a requirement. Um, with coaching, it's one-on-one. I can give that client exactly what they need. We can talk about exactly what is most pressing for them on that day. Um, mm. If they're not into it on that day, like I have a lot of students that come in and they're tired or they don't particularly want to be there at that moment. And I can change it up in the moment to, to give them what would be useful for them right then. Even if they're reluctant yeah. to be there, I can, it, that's where the challenge comes in. Can I find a way to make this interesting to them? Can I find a way to make it useful to them right now so that they leave and they feel like that was worth coming. That was worth pushing dinner for. That was worth mm. coming after my sports practice or whatever. Um, mm. So I, I also teach some workshops. Like in the summer, um, coming up the end of July, I teach a college readiness workshop for students, not all of whom have executive functioning challenges, but many do. Um, and it's a small group, and those students are almost always very curious about what I have to offer because they're like really nervous and, and interested in seeing themselves as college students and they want to know like what can I do when I get there to succeed so they're engaged. Um, so well, I find that okay. the one-on-one or the small group allows me to give them what they want in the moment so that they're more engaged and also if they're not engaged then I find that a workable challenge. Like that's something I can work with. Whereas a classroom of 50 students that are not engaged, that's, that's harder, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm, like I, mm-hmm. That's a different skill set to get 50 blank stares to engage. One blank stare to engage, that I'm really good at. 
And so I'm thinking, as you say this, like I'm hearing you talk about coaching as this, like I can give them what they need in the moment. And even Mm -hmm. if they came to me early on with this particular issue, but this new one is sort of emerging today, um, Mm -hmm. uh, I can work with that and we can talk through that. And so for me, it sounds like – it sounds like you're you have more um it's like the gift of presence, right? I get to yeah. I get to be more present with them and they get to be more present with me. Um yeah. I don't know. What what do you think when I say that? What is that? I think you're right. Um you know, I've got two young kids and when I'm doing work that isn't face to face with with a client I'm often distracted if I'm trying to do my billing, if I'm trying to, like, work on curriculum for this summer workshop. It can be hard to carve out time when I'm not, like, multitasking. I'm trying to get the kids engaged with whatever they need to be doing, and um, I'm trying to do my work. I'm trying to take care of the house, whatever. But when I'm with a client one-on-one, I am fully focused on them. And that, Mm. I mean... That's awesome. When's the last time you spent 45 minutes fully zoned in to another person, giving them your full attention and working with them and trying to like kind of, you can't see my body, but I'm like doing this sort of like wrestling thing where we're like working together and we're trying to find solutions. Um, I find that really energizing. And like the time just flies for me. Um, Yeah. And I feel like I was there. For 45 minutes, I was there. Um, And that the client gets to leave saying, like, okay, cool. I feel, like, ready for the week. I know what I need to do to make this work. Um, That's a great great feeling. Oh, my gosh. I absolutely felt that. Like, I feel the same way about coaching. And that is also a reason I, I do the podcast because I like mm. to hear people's stories and be with them in that way. Um, because, yeah, you're right. What, at what time in your life do you really get to do that? And the depth, I think, is another big one. I don't know if you would agree with that, but, like, just that, that really getting into it in a really deep way as opposed to the, the fairly superficial conversations and connections we right. have, you know, with most of the people in our lives. <laughs> That's so true. Basis. I know my clients better than I know a lot of my friends, you know. I uh-huh. know the, the really hard stuff, and we've worked through it together. Um, and that's, that's pretty cool to be trusted to help people in that way, yeah. both the adults yeah. and, the, and the teenagers. You know, who do they have in their life that, give them 45 minutes of full attention to work on what well, they think is most important. Um, yeah. Not that many people, even parents, you know, it, I empathize with the parents. It's hard out there. Um, and it's hard to find time when you're not pulled in many directions. So, and especially with teenagers who sometimes are a little prickly towards their parents. Um, I think <laughs> parents appreciate knowing that, like, their high school and college kids have somebody who they can tell the stuff to. I'm not a therapist, but, you know, they tell me about the school troubles, and we work through. We figure out how we're going to approach this, and we figure out some solutions. 
And then the expertise comes okay. in by knowing, like, okay, I know you're resisting a planner, but maybe <laughs> can we just give it a try? <laughs> um, knowing some ways to kind of, like, work with them, give a little, get a little, um, and we get to a place where they find a strategy or a, a plan that works for them. Mm. So good. So good. Uh, I want to ask you one last question, and then I want you um, to go ahead and tell us um, where people can find you, because I know there are a lot of people out there who are struggling in these ways that you talk about. You know, I mean, I think most of us are. I, mm -hmm. I know I am. Um, and so I, I want you to give us your information so that people can contact you if, if they um, if they would find it helpful. Um, but before I do that, I want to ask you about um, just sort of the differences in the type of coaching you do. Because you've mentioned academic coaching and you've mentioned ADHD coaching and um, and I'm trying to think what other kind of coaching we've talked about. I don't, maybe not another kind. Oh, and you've talked about tutoring as well. Um, mm -hmm. And so I'm just wondering, could you just give us a good sort of um, explanation about where you fit into all of those different categories? Sure. Yeah. So tutoring is subject area specific. This is learning chemistry, learning math, learning the nuts and bolts of a subject area. I don't remember my calculus, so I'm not going to be a help to a student who's struggling with math subject area like that. Um, I often help people find a good tutor, but I am not a, a subject area tutor. Coaching, um, especially executive functioning coaching, is about listening to the challenges, the strengths and the weaknesses, and figuring out how the client can capitalize on the strengths. Sometimes that's support network. Sometimes that's passion. Sometimes that's like feistiness. Sometimes that's that you're a great reader but not a great writer or whatever. You know, like learning I, – I often get reports from neuropsychologists who have done batteries of tests, and I can see what are the strengths and weaknesses according to the test, but then I can also ah. talk to the client, and I talk to a parent if that's appropriate with a, with a younger client. And we figure yeah. out what are, this, what are the student's strengths and weaknesses, and are there – strategies we can use to work around the weaknesses. If you have trouble um, organizing, is there a planner we can use that the, that the client will tolerate? Um, mm -hmm. If you have trouble regulating emotions, what can we do there about like pausing, deep breathing? Um, if you have trouble mm, staying focused, then we focus on that interest novel challenging thing. Maybe it's about changing up location. Maybe it's about making the task more interesting. Maybe it's about using a timer to break it into chunks. You know, all kinds of little strategies. Um, this is not about fixing ADHD or anxiety or, or autism. There's nothing to fix there um, because autism is, is not necessarily a problem. Um, this is about figuring out the things that are stumbling blocks and helping the client build some scaffolding to walk right over that stumbling block. Um, a Love lot it. of my clients are, on, are medicated, and that's great, but medication is not going to help you learn how to take appropriate notes in class. <laughs> um, 
medication is not going to help you figure out how to structure an argument in the last chapter of your dissertation. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But that mm-hmm. kind of stuff, I can be a sounding board. A lot of times with my, with my um, dissertation clients, a lot of what I do is we just talk. You know, they're having trouble working through an argument, and I'm like, well, try it out on me. Talk me through what you're talking about. And the whole time I'm taking notes, and then I send them the notes, and it's like, oh, my God, there it is. There's uh, the page. I love it. Yeah. Um, because they had it in their head. They were just struggling to get it out or not trusting themselves or um, mm-hmm. for whatever reason – struggling to start or to stay focused to finish or whatever. Um, so, so what I do, it's a little less, I mean, a lot of times coaching is completely client-driven. The client comes in and it's very much there just talking and the coach applies a little bit of guidance here or there. And what I do is a little more structured because I will say, I I got to tell you, I think what you need is a planner, <laughs> you know, and I think that that's not something okay. that um, a traditional coach would do is be quite so directive. Um, okay. So it's a little more directive in that way. Um, I think I'm a like a pretty no bullshit kind of person. Like we're not going to be doing vision boards or dream casting or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Not to say that that stuff, I shouldn't say that stuff is bullshit, but um, I'm a, I'm a, science-driven person. So a lot of my recommendations are based on stuff I've read in the literature. Um, I Sometimes ADHD coaches, um, I think, are – I'm being delicate here. Um, I think that they're <laughs> – unrealistic about the fact that this is a neurological condition, that this is not about curing. This is about Mm. finding ways to navigate the world with your neurodivergent style. Um, Okay. So I I try and be very research-based because I care about that and I think it's important Mm. and that's the lens through which I see the world. So. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love it. Thank you. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. So tell me if people um, might find your services um, useful to them, and I can't mm-hmm. imagine that there won't be people. Um, where can they reach you? What's the best way for them to reach out to you? Um, the best way is probably my webpage. You can go to www.ontrackacademiccoaching, all one word, Dot com. They can also just give me a call, 614-245-5377. And what I always do with new people that contact me is we set up a quick little 15-minute phone call where I kind of hear what you've got going on and we figure out if I'm the right person to help. Um, I have this workshop coming up in the, let's see, it's the last week of July, and it's all online this year. So people anywhere can can do it. It's a college success workshop, Mastering the Transition to College. Um, I have lots of great feedback from when I've done it in the past. Um, so if awesome. you have a college student who is, or if you know of a college student who's heading off into this uncertain COVID-19 
year, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and you want them to be ready to go with the flow and to mm-hmm. you know, know what to expect from hybrid education and to not have this be a wasted year, um, I think this would be a great opportunity for them. And again, um, you can check out my website, ontrackacademiccoaching.com, or you can give me a call, 614-245-5377. Awesome. Okay. Thank you so, so much, Jessica. I know you got to get going. So um, I really appreciate your story. And um, I will uh, give you some, um, some feedback about when your episode is coming out and all that stuff uh, here in the next little while. I'll just kind of email you. Um, But gosh, this is so good. This was so, so good. I so have this um, appreciation for what you do. And um, the thing I was thinking about is like, when I first saw I, I did, I, and this may or may not be on our, uh, on the recording, but I, when I first saw what you did, um, I saw executive and I saw coaching and I thought you were an executive coach. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, uh, but then the the functioning part was like, wait, what? Mm, what? I'm not sure. So um, I love hearing about how you've just sort of carved out your own thing, and you don't know of anybody else then who who calls themselves an executive functioning coach. Well, you know, I haven't looked in a few years. A few years ago, there was no one else calling it that. Probably because of the exact thing you're mentioning, that it's uh, a right. little confusing. Um, and that lay people don't know. But what I am finding is that more and more parents know what executive functioning is. Um, mm-hmm. not, not a parent of a typical kid, but a parent of a kid who is struggling with executive functions, they have now heard that term. And so they're like, oh, I know what that is, and I know that my kid struggles with that. Um, <clears throat> so I used to call it academic coaching, and then I started kind of calling it ADHD coaching, except for I didn't want to. I didn't want to cut out the students who don't fit under that exact category. Um, I yeah. do work with kids that don't have any diagnosis; they're just kind of floundering a little bit. Um, yeah. So, for I think for my niche, they know what it means. I hope. I don't know. Um, yeah. But that's well, obviously, it's working. Yeah. 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 Okay. Awesome. Okay. I know you got to go. Have a good day. Thank you so, so, so much for the the great okay. conversation. Yeah, and thanks for inviting me. Yes, absolutely. It was a pleasure. Thanks for joining me today on Self Compassionate Professor. I'm Danielle Delamar, wishing you a wonderful day and much happiness, health, and peace. Take care. <laughs>